the cosmic void. Onward it stretches into infinity, matched in depth and vastness by but one thing, the human imagination. We present now a story from this, the greater of two endless realms. Join us as we enter a gate beyond. If you could possess one superpower, what would it be? Many would choose the ability to fly like Superman, or perhaps move at the speed of light like the Flash. Another popular choice is invisibility, as one would assume the state of being unseen should in theory provide all manner of freedoms. And yet, in this week's story, such a condition proves to be not a blessing or gift, but a curse and punishment. This is entitled, To See the Invisible Man, by Robert Silverberg. And then they found me guilty, and then they pronounced me invisible, for a span of one year beginning on the 11th of May, in the year of grace, 2104. And they took me to a dark room beneath the courthouse to affix the mark to my forehead before turning me loose. Two municipally paid ruffians did the job. One flung me into a chair and the other lifted the brand. This won't hurt a bit, slapjawed ape said, and thrust the brand against my forehead. And there was a moment of coolness, and that was all. What happens now? I asked. There was no answer, and they turned away from me and left the room without a word. The door remained open. I was free to leave, or to stay and rot, as I chose. No one would speak to me, or look at me more than once, long enough to see the sign on my forehead. I was invisible. You must understand that my invisibility was strictly metaphorical. I still had corporeal solidity. People could see me they would not see me. An absurd punishment? Perhaps. But then the crime was absurd too. The crime of coldness. Refusal to unburden myself for my fellow man. I was a four-time offender. The penalty for that was a year's invisibility. The complaint had been duly sworn. The trial held. Brand duly affixed. I was invisible. I went out out into the world of warmth. They had already had the afternoon rain. The streets of the city were drying, and there was a smell of growth in the hanging gardens. Men and women went about their business. I walked among them, but they took no notice of me. The penalty for speaking to an invisible man is invisibility, a month to a year or more, depending on the seriousness of the offense. On this, the whole concept depends. I wondered how rigidly the rule was observed. I soon found out. I stepped into a lift shaft and let myself be spiraled up toward the nearest of the hanging gardens. It was eleven, the cactus garden, and those gnarled, bizarre shapes suited my mood.
I emerged on the landing stage and advanced toward the admissions counter to buy my token. Pasty-faced, empty-eyed woman sat back at the counter. I laid down my coin. Something like fright entered her eyes, quickly faded. One admission, I said. No answer. People were queuing up behind me. I repeated my demand. The woman looked up helplessly, then stared over my left shoulder. A hand extended itself. Another coin was placed down. She took it and handed the man his token. He dropped it in the slot and went in. Let me have a token, I said crisply. Others were jostling me out of the way. Not a word of apology. I began to sense some of the meaning of my invisibility. They were literally treating me as though they could not see me. There are countervailing advantages. I walked around behind the counter and helped myself to a token without paying for it. Since I was invisible, I could not be stopped. I thrust the token into the slot and entered the garden. But the cacti bored me. An inexpressible malaise slipped over me, and I felt no desire to stay. On my way out, I pressed my finger against a jutting thorn and drew blood. The cactus, at least, still recognized my existence, but only to draw blood. I returned to my apartment. My books awaited me, but I felt no interest in reading them. I sprawled out on my narrow bed and activated the energizer to combat the strange lassitude that was afflicting me. I thought about my invisibility. It would not be such a hardship, I told myself. I had never depended overly on other human beings. Indeed, had I not been sentenced in the first place for my coldness toward my fellow creatures? So what need did I have of them now? Let them ignore me. It would be restful. I had a year's respite from work, after all. Invisible men did not work. How could they? Why would they go to an invisible doctor for a consultation, or hire an invisible lawyer to represent him, or give a document to an invisible clerk to file? No work, then. No income, of course, either. But landlords did not take rent from invisible men. Invisible men went where they pleased, at no cost. I had just demonstrated that to Hanging Gardens. Invisibility would be a great joke on society, I felt. They had sentenced me to nothing more dreadful than a year's rest cure. I was certain I would enjoy it. But there were certain practical disadvantages. On the first night of my invisibility, I went to the city's finest restaurant. I would order their most lavish dishes, a hundred-unit meal, and then conveniently vanish at the presentation of the bill. My thinking was muddy. I never got seated. I stood in the entrance half an hour, bypassed again and again by a maitre d' hotel who had clearly been through all of this many times before. Walking to a seat, I realized, would gain me nothing. No waiter would take my order. I could go into the kitchen. I could help myself to anything I pleased. I could disrupt the workings of the restaurant. But I decided against it. Society had its ways of protecting itself against the invisible ones. There could be no direct retaliation, of course, no intentional defense. But who could say no to a chef's claim that he had seen no one in the way when he hurled a pot of scalding water toward the wall? 
Invisibility was invisibility. Two-edged sword. I left the restaurant. I ate at an automated restaurant nearby. Then I took an autocab home. Machines, like cacti, did not discriminate against my sort. I sensed that they would make poor companions for a year. I slept poorly. The second day of my invisibility was a day of further testing and discovery. I went for a long walk, careful to stay on the pedestrian paths. I had heard about all of the boys who enjoy running down those who carry the mark of invisibility on their foreheads. Again, there is no recourse, no punishment for them. My condition has its little hazards by intention. I walked the streets, seeing how the throngs parted for me. I cut through them like a microtome passing between cells. They were well trained. In midday, I saw my first fellow invisible. He was a tall man of middle years, stocky and dignified, bearing the mark of shame on a dome-like forehead. His eyes met mine only for a moment, then he passed on. An invisible man, naturally, cannot see another of his kind. I was amused, nothing more. I was still savoring the novelty of this way of life. No slight could hurt me. Not yet. Late in the day, I came to one of those bathhouses where working girls can cleanse themselves for a couple of small coins. I smiled wickedly and went up the steps. The attendant at the door gave me the flicker of a startled look. It was a small triumph for me. I did not dare stop. I went in. An overpowering smell of soap and sweat struck me. I persevered inward. I passed cloakrooms where long rows of gray smocks were hanging, and it occurred to me that I could rifle those smocks of every unit they contained. I did not. Theft loses meaning when it becomes too easy, as the clever ones who devised invisibility were aware. I passed on into the bath chambers themselves. Hundreds of women were there, nubile girls, weary wenches, old crones. Some blushed, few smiled. Many turned their backs on me, but they were careful not to show any real reaction to my presence. Supervisory matrons stood guard, and who knew but that she might be reported for taking undue cognizance of the existence of an invisible. So I watched them bathe, watched 500 pairs of bobbing breasts, watched naked bodies glistening under the spray, watched this vast mass of bare feminine flesh. My reaction was a mixed one sense of wicked achievement having penetrated the sanctum sanctorum unhalted, and then, welling up slowly within me, a sensation of... was it sorrow? Boredom? Repulsion? I was unable to analyze it, but it felt as though a clammy hand had seized my throat. I left quickly. The smell of soapy water stung my nostrils hours afterward, and the sight of pink flesh haunted my dreams that night. I ate alone in one of the automatics. I began to see that the novelty of this punishment was soon lost. In the third week, I fell ill. It began with a high fever, then pains of the stomach, vomiting, the rest of the ugly symptomology. 
By midnight, I was certain I was dying. The cramps were intolerable, and when I dragged myself to the toilet cubicle, I caught sight of myself in the mirror, distorted, greenish, beaded with sweat. The mark of invisibility stood out like a beacon on my pale forehead. For a long time, I lay on the tiled floor, limply absorbing the coolness of it. Then I thought, what if it's my appendix? That ridiculous, obsolete, obscure, prehistoric survival. Inflamed, ready to burst. I needed a doctor. The phone was covered with dust. They had not bothered to disconnect it, but I had not called anyone since my arrest, and no one has dared to call me. The penalty for knowingly telephoning an invisible man is invisibility. My friends, such as they were, had stayed far away. I grasped the phone, thumbed the panel. It lit up and the directory robot said, With whom do you wish to speak, sir? Doctor, I gasped. Certainly, sir. Bland, smug, mechanical words. No way to pronounce a robot invisible. So it was free to talk to me. The screen glowed. Doctorly voice said, What seems to be the trouble? Stomach pains. Maybe appendicitis. We'll have a man over and... He stopped. I had made the mistake of turning my agonized face. His eyes lit on my forehead mark. The screen winked into blackness as rapidly as though I had extended a leprous hand for him to kiss. Doctor, I groaned. He was gone. I buried my face in my hands. This was carrying things too far, I thought. Did the Hippocratic Oath allow things like this? Could the doctor ignore a sick man's plea for help? Hippocrates had not known anything about invisible men. A doctor was not required to minister to an invisible man. To society at large, I simply was not there. Doctors could not diagnose diseases in non-existent individuals. I was left to suffer. And who knew but that she might be reported for taking undue cognizance of the existence of an invisible it was one of invisibility's less attractive features. You enter a bathhouse unhindered if that pleases you, but you writhe on a bed of pain equally unhindered. The one with the other, and if your appendix happens to rupture, why, it is all the greater deterrent to others who might perhaps have gone your lawless way. My appendix did not rupture. I survived, though badly shaken. The man can survive without human conversation for a year. He can travel on automated cars and eat at automated restaurants, but there are no automated doctors. For the first time, I felt truly beyond the pale. A convict in a prison is given a doctor when he falls ill. My crime had not been serious enough to merit prison, and so no doctor would treat me if I suffered. It was unfair. I cursed the devils who had invented my punishment. I faced each bleak dawn alone, as alone as Crusoe on his island, here in the midst of a city of twelve million souls. How can I describe my shifts of mood, my many tacks before the changing winds of the passing months? There were times when invisibility was a joy, a delight, a treasure. In those paranoid moments, I gloried in my exemption from the rules that bound ordinary men. I stole. I entered small stores and seized the receipts while the cowering merchant feared to stop me, lest in crying out that he make himself liable to my invisibility. 
If I had known that the state reimbursed all such losses, I might have taken pleasure in it. I stole. I invaded. The bathhouse never tempted me again, but I breached other sanctuaries. I entered hotels and walked down the corridors, opening doors at random. Most rooms were empty. Some were not. Godlike, I observed all. I toughened. My disdain for society, the crime that had earned me invisibility in the first place, heightened. I stood in the empty streets during the periods of rain and railed at the gleaming faces of the towering buildings on every side. Who needs you? I roared. Not I. Who needs you in the slightest? I jeered and mocked and railed. It was a kind of insanity brought on, I suppose, by the loneliness. I entered theaters, where the happy lotus-eaters sat slumped in their massage chairs, transfixed by the glowing titrum images, and capered down the aisles. No one grumbled at me. The luminescence of my forehead told them to keep their complaints to themselves, and they did. Those were the mad moments, the good moments, the moments when I towered twenty feet high and strode among the visible clods with contempt oozing from every pore. Those were insane moments, I admit that freely. A man who has been in a condition of involuntary invisibility for several months is not likely to be well-balanced. Did I call them paranoid moments? Manic-depressive might be more to the point. Pendulum swung dizzily. The days when I felt only contempt for the visible fools all around me were balanced by days when the isolation pressed in tangibly on me. I would walk the endless streets, pass through the gleaming arcades, stare down at the highways with their streaking bullets of gay colors. Not even a beggar would come up to me. Did you know we had beggars in our shining century? Not till I was pronounced invisible did I know it, for then my long walks took me to the slums, where the shine has worn thin, and where shuffling stubble-faced old men beg for small coins. No one begged for coins from me. Once a blind man came up to me. By the love of God, he wheezed. Help me to buy new eyes from the eye bank. They were the first direct words that any human being had spoken to me in months. I started to reach into my tunic for money, planning to give him every unit on me in gratitude. Why not? I could get more simply by taking it. But before I could draw the money out, a nightmare figure hobbled on crutches between us. I caught the whispered word, Invisible, and then the two of them scuttled away like frightened crabs. I stood there stupidly holding my money. Not even the beggars. Devils to have invented this torment. So I softened again. My arrogance ebbed away. I was lonely now. Who could accuse me of coldness? I was spongy soft, pathetically eager for a word, a smile, a clasping hand. It was the sixth month of my invisibility. I loathed it entirely now. Its pleasures were hollow ones and its torment was unbearable. I wondered how it would survive the remaining six months. Believe me, suicide was not far from my mind in those dark hours. And finally, I committed an act of foolishness. On one of my endless walks, I encountered another invisible, no more than the third or the fourth such creature that I had seen in my six months. 
As in the previous encounters, our eyes met, warily, only for a moment. Then he dropped to the pavement, and he sidestepped me and walked on. He was a slim young man, no more than forty, with tousled brown hair and a narrow pinched face. He had a look of scholarship about him, and I wondered what he might have done to merit his punishment, and I was seized with a desire to run after him and ask him, and to learn his name, and to talk to him, and to embrace him. All these things are forbidden to mankind. No one shall have any contact whatsoever with an invisible, not even a fellow invisible, especially not a fellow invisible. There is no wish on society's part to foster a secret bond of fellowship among its pariahs. I knew all of this. I turned and followed him all the same. For three blocks I moved along behind him, remaining twenty to fifty paces to the rear. Security robots seemed to be everywhere, their scanners equipped to detect an infraction, and I did not dare make my move. Then he turned down a side street, a grey, dusty street five centuries old, and began to stroll with the ambling, going-nowhere gait of the invisible. I came up behind him. Please, I said softly, no one will see us here, we can talk. My name is... He whirled on me, horror in his eyes. His face was pale. He looked at me in amazement for a moment, then darted forward as though to go around me. I blocked him. Wait, I said. Don't be afraid. Please. He burst past me, put my hand on his shoulder, and he wriggled free. It's a word, I begged. Not even a word. Not even a hoarsely uttered leave me alone. He sidestepped me and ran down the empty street, his steps diminishing from a clatter to a murmur as he reached the corner and rounded it. I looked after him, feeling a great loneliness well up in me. And then a fear. He hadn't breached the rules of invisibility, but I had. I had seen him. That left me subject to punishment, an extension of my term of invisibility, perhaps. I looked around anxiously, but there were no security robots in sight. No one at all. I was alone. Kerning, calming myself, I continued down the street. Gradually, I regained control over myself. I saw that I had done something unpardonably foolish. The stupidity of my action troubled me, but even more the sentimentality of it. To reach out in that panicky way to another invisible, to admit openly my loneliness, my need, no. It meant that society was winning. I couldn't have that. I found that I was near the cactus garden once again. I rode the lift shaft, grabbed a token from the attendant, and bought my way in. I searched for a moment, then found a twisted, elaborately ornate cactus eight feet high, a spiny monster. I wrenched it from its pot and broke the angular limbs to fragments, filling my hands with a thousand needles. People pretended not to watch. I plucked the spines from my hands and, palms bleeding, rode the lift shaft down once again sublimely aloof in my invisibility. The eighth month passed, the ninth, the tenth. The seasonal round had made nearly a complete turn. Spring had given way to a mild summer, summer to a crisp autumn, autumn to winter with its fortnightly snowfalls, 
still permitted for aesthetic reasons. Winter had ended now. In the parks, the trees sprouted green buds. The weather control people stepped up the rainfall to thrice daily. My term was drawing to its end. In the final months of my invisibility, I had slipped into a kind of torpor. My mind, forced back on its own resources, no longer cared to consider the implications of my condition, and I slid in a blurred haze from day to day. I read compulsively, but unselectively. Aristotle one day, the Bible the next, a handbook of mechanics the next. I retained nothing. As I turned a fresh page, its predecessor slipped from my memory. I no longer bothered to enjoy the few advantages of invisibility, the voyeuristic thrills, the minute throb of power that comes from being able to commit any act with only limited fears of retaliation. I say limited because the passage of the Invisibility Act had not been accompanied by an act repealing human nature. Few men would not risk invisibility to protect their wives or children from an invisible one's molestations. No one would coolly allow an invisible to jab out his eyes. No one would tolerate an invisible's invasion of his home. There were ways of coping with such infringements without appearing to recognize the existence of the invisible as I have mentioned. Still, it was possible to get away with a great deal. I declined to try. Somewhere Dostoevsky had written, Without God, all things are possible. I can amend that. To the invisible man, all things are possible. And uninteresting. So it was. The weary months passed. I did not count the minutes till my release. To be precise, I wholly forgot that my term was due to end. On the day itself, I was reading in my room, morosely turning page after page, when the annunciator chimed. It had not chimed for a full year. I had almost forgotten the meaning of the sound. But I opened the door. There they stood, the men of the law. Wordlessly, they broke the seal that held the mark to my forehead. The emblem dropped away and shattered. Hello, citizen, they said to me. I nodded gravely. Yes, hello. May 11th, 2105. Your term is up. You are restored to society. You have paid your debt. Thank you, yes. Come for a drink with us. I'd sooner not. It's the tradition. Come along. I went with them. My forehead felt strangely naked now, and I glanced in a mirror to see that there was a pale spot where the emblem had been. They took me to a bar nearby and treated me to synthetic whiskey, raw, powerful. The bartender grinned at me. Someone on the next stool clapped me on the shoulder and asked me who I liked in tomorrow's jet races. I had no idea, and I said so. You mean it? I'm back in Kelso. Ordewan, but he's got terrific spurt power. I'm sorry, I said. He's been away for a while, one of the government men said softly. The euphemism was unmistakable. My neighbor glanced at my forehead and nodded at the pale spot. He offered to buy me a drink, too. I accepted, though I was already feeling the effects of the first one. I was a human being again. I was visible. I did not dare spurn him anyway. It might have been construed as a crime of coldness once again. My fifth offense would have meant five years of invisibility. I had learned humility. 
Returning to visibility involved an awkward transition, of course. Old friends to meet, lame conversations to hold, shattered relationships to renew. I had been in exile in my own city for over a year, and coming back was not easy. No one referred to my time of invisibility naturally. It was treated as an affliction best left unmentioned. Hypocrisy, I thought, but I accepted it. Doubtless, they were all trying to spare my feelings. Does one tell a man whose cancerous stomach has been replaced, I hear you had a narrow escape just now? Does one say to a man whose aged father has tottered off toward a euthanasia house, well, he was getting pretty feeble anyway, wasn't he? No, of course not. So there was this hole in our shared experiences, this void, this blankness, which left me with little to talk about with my friends, in particular since I had lost the knack of conversation entirely. The period of readjustment was a trying one. But I persevered, for I was no longer the same haughty, aloof person that I had been before my conviction. I had learned humility in the hardest of schools. Now and then I noticed an invisible on the streets, of course. It was impossible to avoid them. But, trained as I had been trained, I quickly glanced away as though my eyes had come momentarily to rest on some gambling, festering horror from another world. It was in the fourth month of my return to visibility that the ultimate lesson of my sentence struck home, though. I was in the vicinity of the city tower, having returned to my old job in the documents division of the municipal government. I had left work for the day and was walking toward the tubes when a hand emerged from the crowd and caught my arm. Please, the soft voice said. Wait a minute. Don't be afraid. I looked up, startled. In our city, strangers do not accost strangers. I saw the gleaming emblem of invisibility on the man's forehead. Then I recognized him. The slim man I had accosted more than half a year before on that deserted street. He had grown haggard, his eyes were wild, his brown hair flecked with gray. He must have been at the beginning of his term then. Now he must have been near its end. He held my arm. I trembled. This was no deserted street. This was the most crowded square of the city. I pulled my arm away from his grasp and started to turn away. No, don't go, he cried. Can't you pity me? You've been there yourself. I took a faltering step. Then I remembered how I had cried out to him, how I had begged him not to spurn me. I remembered my own miserable loneliness. I took another step away from him. Coward, he shrieked after me. Talk to me, I dare you, talk to me, coward. It was too much. I was touched. Sudden tears stung my eyes, and I turned to him, stretched a hand out to his. I caught his thin wrist. The contact seemed to electrify him. A moment later, I held him in my arms, trying to draw some of the misery from his frame to mine. Security robots closed in, surrounding us. He was hurled to one side, I was taken into custody. They will try me again, not for the crime of coldness this time, but for a crime of warmth. Perhaps they will find extenuating circumstances and release me. Perhaps not. I do not care. If they condemn me, this time, 
I will wear my invisibility like a shield of glory. Thank you for joining us for this episode of A Gate Beyond. Join us again in two weeks for more tales of the unusual and otherworldly gathered from the farthest reaches of the human imagination. Until then, always go beyond. Produced and edited by Danny Atwell. A Gate Beyond is a production of Dark Charm Media. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved.